0: Good morning, I'm Sheila Morris. Our reading is from Matthew 6. Jesus said, beware of your practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, you have received your reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The word of the Lord.
1: We are on week three, being back in Madison High School, and I know that um, many of you have little kids in here. We don't yet have our kids' classes up and running. And if your kids are squirrely and noisy, that's okay. I see this every week, but they are kids. They're supposed to be squirrely and noisy. If an adult next to you is squirrely and noisy, just elbow them. Um, There is a gym, and there is also a room across the hallway that you can use if you need to take advantage of that. Uh, This morning, we're continuing our study in the Sermon on the Mount that we've been in all summer. And if you're visiting with us and catching up, we're in Matthew chapter 6. We're going to take it over the next three weeks. We're taking a portion of it this morning. The portion that I want us to start on is in verse 1 and 3. I'm going to read this again for us, even though Sheila just read it for us. Here's what Jesus says in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. But, in verse 3, he says, when you give to the needy, When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And he goes on teaching on that. From this passage, and actually from the whole of the Sermon on the Mount, we get three things that I think we should see, especially in the section that I just read and the portion that was read by Sheila, is that Jesus cares about our actions. He cares about what we do in life. He cares about what we do with our body, about what we do with our words, about what we do with our money. He cares about our motives even more than that. We see this again and again, that it's the motive underneath. It's not just do not murder, it's do you desire somebody to be eliminated? He cares about our motives, why we do what we do. Even when you're giving, why are you doing it? And that's because at the the root of it, Jesus cares about our heart. He cares about who we are and what we are living for. So if we're going to back up and kind of have the big picture of the whole of Jesus, right, and especially in relation to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus came to establish God's kingdom. And that means God's rule and reign as it is in heaven on earth. God's rule and reign intervening into this broken and fallen world to restore things to God's Edenic purposes and what he will one one day do in eternity. Jesus came to establish God's reign and through that to form a people to form a kingdom people. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount is. It's a calling of the disciples, of people to follow him and become kingdom people, to live out the fullness of God's rule and reign in their lives and through their lives through the world around them. And he cares about our motives and our actions and our heart to be submitted to and living for God's purposes, his kingdom purposes, and not our own. And in Matthew 6, he presses on something we don't like to talk about much. So we'll talk about it, money. Jesus cares what we do with our money, why we do what we do, and our heart underneath of it. And that's not the only thing he's talking about in this passage, but I'm going to push us in on that a little bit. So what Jesus says um, in verse 19 is that famous phrase, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Do not lay up for yourselves. Do not build. Do not set your life on treasures on earth. And in that phrasing, he's talking about our actions, what we do. Spending your life trying to build an empire on this earth. Don't build it on things that can be eaten by moths or rust or be stolen, right? And in a sense, we know that. Any person, regardless of whether you believe in the Jesus thing or not, we know that money and possessions can't save us. But we're pretty sure they can make us happy. We put a lot of our hope in our money and possessions. No, 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 it's not going to get me to heaven, it's not going to save me ultimately, but it will make my life a lot easier. Having a little bit more would be really nice. And in fact, actually, more money can in some ways make you happy. Buying things, investing in things can make you happy on some level. Do you know the, um, that kind of rush you get when a package arrives? Well, there's a whole process to it psychologically that I don't know anything about, but I'm going to tell you about it because it's my own story. Um, I've needed running shoes for about a year because I don't run, but I walk my dog. And so I take my walking my dog seriously. So I have these pair of running shoes I love. And um, I've had them for a while. They're kind of worn out. I'm like, I'm going to get the same pair again in case I'm ever walking my dog or being chased by somebody and I need a good running shoe. So I ordered them on Tuesday from the company. On Wednesday, I get a notification on my email, your shipment has started. Then it begins, right? It was going from Kentucky to on Thursday, it arrived in Indianapolis. It's FedEx, so it should be here any day now. Thursday in Indianapolis, on Friday it was in Ohio, and of course I'm checking, right? Like, I'm now tracking it. I'm not waiting for the emails. I've got the FedEx, like, kind of code, and I'm just like, where is it, where is it, where is it, where is it, where is it? it? Refresh, refresh. Saturday, yesterday, it was in Hagerstown, Maryland. It's coming today. You know that feeling, right? And then it's going to arrive, and actually, right before it arrives, you actually get a dopamine rush. People have studied this. You get a dopamine rush. The same thing that happens when you're kind of eating a lot of sugar or, or, like, shooting heroin. It's like that package is arriving. And you're like, ah, ah, ah. and then you open it up, and it's like, okay, so that's, that's great, it's just what I ordered. And then the next day, you look for the next thing, because you need another dopamine rush, another hit of that happiness. It does provide it momentarily, but it's very temporary. Investments can do the same thing. You know if you have a lot of investments. You track them, you track the markets. You track your, your, you know, pretend coin that you're investing in. You try to see where things go. Oh, you know, and as COVID's spreading again, is the market going down? Do I need to drop? You know, you can have elation or deep anxiety based on everything you're watching. It can bring you great joy or great terror because of your investments. We're the sort of people that are wired to want more no matter how much we have. When I was in college, I spent a summer leading uh, wilderness trips in the Adirondacks, and that was a very hard thing to do. I'm leading like 10, 12 uh, high school kids who are miserable out in the woods hiking. Um, There's mosquitoes everywhere. We don't have running water. There's no showers. Like to have water, we had to pump water through these filters for like 10 to 12 people. That's an hour, hour and a half of pumping water in the morning and in the evening Mosquitoes everywhere because it was the Adirondacks, kind of it's you know, hot and, and, mo- and wet and basically, um, there were some times when it, temperatures were in the 90s but you have to wear long sleeves and a mosquito net all day and all night. And I, I vowed when I left there that summer that I would never, never, ever, never, ever take for granted air conditioning or running water. And in the 25 years since, I never think about my air conditioning or water unless the air conditioning is not working. Just take it for granted. Once I had it, I wanted more. Like now I need those little pellet ice things. Like running water is not enough. I need a filter, right? It's not cold enough in my fridge coming out. Why not? The more I get, the more I need. Maybe you're different than me, but that's my, my experience. The more I've gotten in life, the more I feel like I need. And why is that? I mean, some of it's comparison, right? As you get more, you tend to be around people who also have more, and so then you think, oh, they make a 60-inch TV? I just got the 50. <laughs> or will we put too much weight on our stuff? I don't know. I don't know why the more I get, the more I think I need. Jesus says a lot about our money, our possessions, our stuff, our wealth. He actually talks more about money than he does about prayer, more about money than he does about sex, more than he talks about even faith. It's one of the most common things that, Jesus, that the Bible talks about as well. In other words, we should take this from at least that basic standpoint, that what we do with our money matters. What we do with our money and stuff matters to God. And based on how Jesus talks about it, with a lot of warnings like beware we should probably assume that we have a money problem. All of us, on some level. Too much hope, too much fear. And remember this, Jesus is not talking to the top 1% in the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking to peasants in rural Palestine under Roman oppression. He is talking to the poorest of the poor 2,000 years ago, at a time when people lived on subsistence subsistence farming, they barely had enough. If the rains didn't come, they might starve to death. So they are as poor as you can get, economically speaking. And he warns them again and again against the love of money and invites them into a radical generosity. Money is a good thing. Jesus doesn't say money is a bad thing. Money is a good thing. With it, we can buy food, have a home, put clothes on us. We need those basic things. With it, you can travel, experience the world, other cultures. With it, you can pay for your kids' college. These things are all good things. But Jesus is clear. Money cannot be trusted. The things that our money provides and money itself will not last and cannot be trusted. And It is not ours. Jesus instead wants us to invest in heaven. In verse 20, he says, But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. Jesus cares about our motives, about why we're doing what we're doing, and what we are ultimately investing in. And he says, invest in what matters and what lasts. Invest in what matters and what lasts. And that's not government savings bonds. It's in what matters and what lasts. Your money should be spent in the same way that your life should be spent. So Jesus is not talking differently about our money and our life, your money and your actions, your money and your heart spend your money and your life on God's kingdom not your own when jesus says in heaven we will always have to remember that the way a hebrew person would have used in heaven doesn't mean escaping up to the clouds or even waiting for eternity to happen it doesn't mean eternal life necessarily it actually means god's rule and reign okay and so when he's saying in heaven he doesn't mean invest in things that will be here a billion years from now necessarily or just to escape and get to heaven But invest in what God is doing right now. Invest in what God wants you to do and wants to do through you in this world today. Dallas Willard, writing about this in The Divine Conspiracy, said, the treasure in heaven idea is about having God himself and his kingdom even now interwoven into my life. Having God and his kingdom even now interwoven into my life. He goes on to say that basically when we are living into that sort of treasure in heaven, we are living into eternity already. We're experiencing what God has in store for us eternally now. Jesus cares about what we are investing in. And what we invest in is at its root where our heart and our motives and our aims are. And that's why we need to be asking again and again, why do we do what we do? Why do we do what we do, including with our money? And there's a couple of principles that I'm going to pull, not just from here, but from kind of the rest of Scripture, but also what Jesus is talking about here. A couple of principles for us to kind of evaluate our our motives with our our stuff and and kind of an approach to it in in our actions. And the the first is, here's here's a principle for our wealth and our stuff, be open-handed. The biblical principle from Genesis to to the end is all our money is God's. Everything we think we have is actually God's. Now, we might know this in theory, especially if you're a good Christian, you've been in church for a long time, you're like, yes, everything I have is God's. But really, really deep down in, we struggle with that. Because especially as, um, as Westerners, as Americans, as people who live in a society where we if if you live in a house and you're paying for it, well, you've worked hard to get there. You've paid for it. You're paying for it. If you have a job and a good job and you keep your job, that's your doing. You got through school. You got the connections. You did the studying. You did the work. You've built that career. You've invested wisely. You've spent it. So it is yours. And yet, How much of even any of that is stuff that we can't control? Again, did you control that you were born in the 20th or 21st century and not in the first? Did you control the kind of brain you were given, the talents you were given? Even think about the way that, let's say, you're a conservative person financially and you invest well and you build that up. How much of that is just because you're awesome and maybe how much of it is because you were trained well by other people that you had no, you you didn't deserve the parents you got and that can be a bad thing or a good thing. But if you have wisdom with money, it might be because you just saw it growing up and another kid or you born in a different family would never have had the exact same experience. What sort of things can you not control? The answer of the Bible is you cannot control anything. So have a gracious, open-handed heart with everything. It's what Job does. Job was brilliant, he worked hard, he invested well, he was generous and kind, morally upstanding, he was the richest man around, and he lost everything. And his prayer after that was, the Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's not mine, it's the Lord's. I was grateful when I had it, but it's all been taken away. It was not mine in the beginning. Blessed be the name of the Lord." How do we get to that sort of an open-handed mindset with everything? It involves a mindset transformation from a mindset of scarcity, which um, as one friend in here told me is the economic principle of capitalism. Everything is built on scarcity. We have a scarcity mindset too. We have a tendency to have fear and anxiety that there's not gonna be enough, And so whether it's a version of hoarding, or if it's simply a version of just accumulating or investing or storing up, we're always worried about whether we're gonna get ours. Will there be enough? We talked about this a couple of months ago. And as a result, we live with a constant state of want and need, it's unsure which is which, and worry, anxiety over our finances. But what Jesus wants us to walk in is a trust that God is an abundant provider. And to be at peace, not anxious or worried about the future. You can't control it anyhow. To be to the point where in our prayer life, we go like this. Lord, what do you want to do with this money? What do you want to do with this car? It's not mine. Yeah, I have the, the you know, the, My name's on it, but what do you want to do with it? With my home? With my gifts and talents? What do you want to do with this? And then he invites us off of that open-handedness to live that out in generosity. In the first section that we read, Jesus says, when you give to the needy, and of course the assumption there is you are giving to the needy. And that's because it's built out of an Old Testament legal Hebrew structure of generosity. The Old Testament codified generosity into the legal system of the entire nation. And basically, it went like this for those of you who haven't heard it before, but basically, the, your income, you were supposed to give 10% of your income to the temple and to the work of the Lord. 10% of your income, regardless of whether the Romans were taxing that, okay? 10% of your income. And then on top of that, whenever something big came into your house or anything special came in, you were supposed to offer offerings. And in fact, when you went to worship at Passover or at Yom Kippur, you offered up a lamb, right? Or a bowl or some wheat, which is basically your your money at that time. So in order to worship God, you actually offered gifts of your, your resources. And then on top of that, you provided for the poor, the widow the orphan, the stranger, the sojourner, the poor. Everything you had was to provide for them as well. The average Old Testament person, if they were being fully faithful, would have given not 10% of their wealth annually, but 15 to 25%. Jesus, of course, doesn't say you have to do that. He assumes that, and then he pushes it further. Let the Spirit lead you. Is God the center of your heart? Let the Spirit lead you towards generosity. Sacrificial and lavish generosity. A recognition that all I have is God's and is available for all that God wants to do with it. That all that I have can be shared. Jesus is inviting us, not just here, but throughout his teaching, into a spirit of generosity that desires to give and looks for opportunities to give. The way Jesus talks about it, the way the Bible talks about our resources is that what we do with our money, with our stuff, is actually a worship and a justice issue. It is a worship and justice issue. It is a I love God most and I love other people most issue. It is a I will give everything I have to God and God's purposes and God's work and for the care of others. It's a worship and justice issue. And that's why Jesus presses on our money because he says like you can't say oh I love God if it isn't showing up in where you what you do with your resources. You can't say I care about justice. I care about protecting the poor. I care about others without a generosity. Jesus knows that. He presses on it. What we have to realize though is all of this isn't just happenstance. Our relationship with treasures, with our treasures, is cultivated. You don't just suddenly all of a sudden have a view, and it's a view that everyone has. Your view on money, my view on money, is not natural or intuitive or obvious to everyone. It's not obviously true. One of the questions that um, Sarah and I got asked 20-some years ago in our premarital counseling was this question. It's an evil question to ask in premarital counseling said, take out a piece of paper. Both of you were sitting on the couch, but don't don't look at each other's paper. I want you to write down a dollar amount that you feel like you are allowed to spend without telling your spouse. That's a great question. I've used it ever since. Especially if people have been single for a while. We were like 21, 22, so we never had money to spend any house. We're like, I don't know, $1? $1. But you get people in their 30s and they've been single for a while. And so like one of them will say, well, you know, they'll write, like if you say like, what can you purchase without telling your spouse? And one writes down a latte and the other one writes down a jet ski. And you're like, ooh, we're going to need a few more sessions here. The point is, actually, that what we think about money is not intuitive. It's actually cultivated over the course of a lifetime. We all have a relationship with money. You love stuff or you fear not having enough. That love-fear is not natural. It's built into us through our family of origin. Through our life circumstances, whether you always had so much and there was always a new car for you, or whether you have struggled to have food on the table, that will shape your view of money and wealth and resources in fear or in overlove. Our relationship with our resources and our money is cultivated, and that means it can be transformed. We can move from fear, scarcity, anxiety, and overlove into open handedness and generosity. And so if we're going to get practical here, I would say take the time today, even as I'm talking, maybe later, to evaluate your relationship. You have a relationship, like a best friend, to your money. You've been dating it for a long time. You've put a ring on that finger. You've decided, yep, I'm with her the rest of my life. You have a relationship, but you also cultivate that relationship. Evaluate your relationship to your money, your possessions, and your resources, your car, your home, your food. Is it yours or are you open? Your income, your savings, are they yours or are they God's? If you had friends that were able to look at you and knew you well, what would they say? They say, oh, yeah, all he has is ours too. Do an audit of how and why you do what you do with your money. And possibly, possibly coming out of this, some of us should take steps. Some of you are already in that place of openness and generosity. And, like, tell me about that so we can, like, I can share these things with other people encouraging news on what this looks like. But most of us need to take steps. And for some of us that it means committing to a baseline. Like, I currently give, if I were to evaluate it about this percent of my income. Jesus is inviting me to so much more, and I am scared to do it, but I'm gonna commit to a baseline, and a plan to increase. And if you are, you know, (laughs) let the Spirit lead you in that, but take steps. Here's what I've found. The more that I have practiced generosity, the less anxious I am about money and stuff. The more I practice generosity, the less anxious I am about money and stuff. At the root of all of this is not just our money and our stuff, though. It's our God. Jesus wants us to treasure God most. In verse 21 and 24, he says, "'Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also.'" And 24, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, or mammon, which means everything, stuff, possessions. Jesus is after our heart, ultimately. You feel like what I've been talking about is he's after my pocketbook. No, he's after your heart. He's after our loves, what we are actually trusting and who we are actually serving. And your God, we've talked about this before, your God is actually what you treasure most. What do you desire or want from life most? What must you have for your life to have meaning or purpose or joy? If I don't have that or if this gets taken away, my life's not worth living. That's what your treasure is. What are your greatest hopes set on and where do your greatest fears lie? That is what you treasure. Where does your mind go when it's free to wander? What do you think about so easily? You think about it again and again. Or what are your greatest nightmares about? That is probably the source of your treasure. And money can be that. Money can be the controlling center. It can be our treasure. But if it's not, if it's not for you, then what Jesus is getting at here is money reveals. Money reveals what is your true treasure. That's why... um, you could actually answer what do I treasure in what do you spend money on easily? What do you spend money on easily? Is it clothes and beauty? Then you probably care about being approved of or people's praise. That's really what matters to you. Do you spend money easily on restaurants or vacations or just one or the other? Then it could be comfort and pleasure you're after or Being the sort of person that has a reputation of going to vacations and restaurants like this so you can post it. Or are you the kind of person that doesn't just spend money like that? You're not one of those sort of people. You invest it, you sock it away, you store it up because you really care about safety and security and control. That is your true center. You see, what we do with our money and what we do easily with our money reveals what is on the throne of our heart. Even why you give. That's what Jesus is getting at in in verses 2 through 4. It's not your right hand can't know what your left hand is doing because that's impossible. He basically means give in such a way that it doesn't matter what anyone thinks about it. As opposed to giving so that everyone sees and your reputation is one as somebody who is generous. But how do we do that? How do we get there? Let me say this, if, if the things I'm talking about feel particularly hard to hear, don't start with money. Don't start with money. Because at the root, you've got to replace your heart's treasure, whatever that is. And in order to do that, you have to realize that you are treasured by God. In 1 Peter 2.9 Jesus, or the Peter says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. God's chosen people, God's people for his own possession, God's own people, his own possession, his treasure. That's what he calls you, his treasure. In 2 Corinthians, we get the gospel described this way, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. How Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. He gave up everything so that you could have everything. And in Romans 8, he says, He who did not spare his own son, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You are treasured by God. Until that sinks deep into your heart, you cannot replace whatever is there. Until you realize you are treasured, you will seek approval or safety or pleasure or control, or happiness in something else until you realize you are treasured. To make Christ your controlling center, you need to understand that first and then cultivate that relationship with him. Let me close with this. Jesus is not trying to take your stuff. Jesus is not trying to steal your money. He wants to set you free. He wants you to live into the fullness of God and all that he has for you. You are his treasure and he wants you to make him your treasure and you can trust him. You can trust him. Let us pray. God, you know I do not like to talk about money. So I don't know why Jesus did, but he did. And so we talked about it this morning, but Lord, as it hits us hard or difficult, convict us in the right way that leads us into a softening of our heart and openness to you and a further trust of you. That we would recognize the depth of your love for us even in these things that you're inviting us into. To see that we are treasured even if we don't feel that way. And God, take our treasure that we might be set free and live into the fullness of all that you have in store for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.